Hello, I'm Dr. Louise Newson, and welcome to my podcast. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity and the Menopause Support App called Balance. On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. So today on the podcast, I have somebody who's been with me on the podcast four times before, which is a record actually. So back again, I've managed to persuade Dr. Sarah Ball to join me to talk about some of her work. So thanks, Sarah. It's a pleasure, Louise. So Sarah's a GP and menopause specialist like myself and have been very, like me, I think, is it fair to say, overwhelmed with stories that we hear day in, day out from menopausal and perimenopausal women, which were not under our radar before we started doing so much menopause work. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I've been amazed at how many people have come to the surface and described their struggle and their suffering and their lack of knowing where to turn. So it's trying to convey that to other people to understand Mm. how to try and help these people. And I think what's really hard, I mean, we're talking today and a publication has come out in the BMJ being quite vocal, actually, and quite sort of anti-women asking for HRT. And also there's this undercurrent that some of the work, certainly that I'm doing, is undermining doctors and being quite negative. And I think that's really sad, actually, because... I'm sure you agree, every healthcare professional wants to do the best that they can, Mm. but it's based on the knowledge that we're given as well. And, you know, this is going off topic, but I remember when I went, did my minor surgery training to learn how to suture to take out moles and things as a GP. And I thought I had done a really good job. And there was this little square with those sutures that you could take home, you know, like your homework to show at home. So I went home and showed my husband, who many of you listening know is a surgeon. I said, look, Paul, look at this. And he just said, that is dreadful. I would (laughs) never use that type of suture material and I would never do that sort of stitch. Please do not go near anybody. So then I thought, right, okay, I'm never, ever going to do minor surgery I did lots of joint injections and aspirations but I never used a suture and he was right I was terrible but I thought I was doing a really good job actually in my little course and I think that's probably the same in menopause isn't it there are some healthcare professionals who sadly haven't had any education and they think that it is wrong that women are asking for HRT and they also don't think that women's joint pains or headaches or just their mood might improve with menopause because they've never been taught it. Yeah, and I I used to think I was good at menopause care because I had the attitude that if a woman was struggling with symptoms, that I was happy to prescribe her HRT. I was reasonably confident to prescribe her HRT. But looking back now, I realise that I was waiting for them to tell me that they were menopausal. Mm. And of course, I wasn't looking for it because I presumed women would know because I presumed they would know hot sweats and flushes means menopause. So I was quite happy in that sphere to do that. But actually all those other patients I was seeing that had anxiety, depression, migraine, skin issues, genitourinary issues, I wasn't joining the dots. Mm. And so that's 
most of the battle. There's no point being confident in treating something if you don't pick it up as a diagnosis in the first place. So yes, it's medical education is crucial and doctors are, and all clinicians are really time pressed and pressured Mm. and good education and timely education and efficient and simple and relatable and practical Mm. education is absolutely crucial. So, you know, you don't know what you don't know, do you? And that's what you've always tried to change. Absolutely true. And I think very much, you know, your work as a clinician, my work as a clinician is putting the patient first and allowing them to be very much involved in decision making. And again, if they don't know, they don't know what to ask for. And I know very, I mean, you've worked with me, which has been wonderful at the clinic for so long now, but very soon after we started hearing stories that we'd not really heard before of such long suffering we started then to see women who'd had breast cancer who had sometimes actually undergone a double menopause so a menopause maybe because of their hormonal treatment for their breast cancer then maybe they'd become older their periods started and then they went through another menopause or some of them it was just once but very harrowing and they came asking for some advice and clearly advice is fine and then they started coming saying well I've tried these alternatives I've tried lifestyle I've tried medication, I've tried some psychological treatments and I'm on my knees and I would really like to try some hormones. And I remember us all going, oh gosh, you know, what do we do? And we've talked about it. We've gone through a lot of evidence and some of you will have listened to the podcast I've done with Sarah Glynn and Tony Branson again. I've done two podcasts with him now talking about some of this work. But it's really harrowing when you've got a patient in front of you and you're thinking, well, no, I can't do that. And they've been told by their oncologist or another menopause specialist often that they cannot have a treatment that you think, well, we know it might help some of your symptoms if they're related, but we know for everybody, then they're going to increase their future health, so reduce their risk of heart disease and osteoporosis because there are benefits from HRT for everyone, aren't there? So so you've been doing a lot of work, actually, not just listening to these women and helping them, but taking it a bit step further, haven't you, with the survey that you've done? And I'd be really keen to hear more and you just to share about the survey that you did, if that's okay. Sure, yeah. I think, I mean, I did a survey originally a couple of years ago when your clinic had only been open about 18 months, because we were seeing women coming with breast cancer. And I think we were all extremely moved by the stories we were hearing and wanted to make sure we were giving them all the right information about all their options and that we were listening to them. But also there was a degree of surprise, I think, that we had so many women starting to come to see us and I felt it was really important to try and find out what their experiences had been before they came to see us sort of say you know these women aren't just having a knee-jerk reaction of oh I know I'm going to go to that clinic that I've heard of and get some help you know there were stories and stories and years of what had gone on before and I wanted to find out more about that so I did that survey and we talked about that in a previous podcast and now sort of two years later we've got even more patients with breast cancer in fact when I ran this survey which was just before the summer this year we had over 450 patients on our books that have had breast cancer or DCIS which is a kind of a pre-invasive condition 
And so we sent out a survey to all of those patients. It was all anonymous and 175 people responded. So that's actually quite a good number Mm. for an online survey of this type. And I wanted to know lots of things really, but I wanted them to try and think back. And I know it's difficult when you've been through cancer your memory is often, you know, you can't really think it was all a bit of a blur at the time. But I wanted them to see, could they remember when they had that initial diagnosis and they were having their treatment planned for them or with them? Was there any mention about the menopause as anything that would be at all influenced? And only one quarter of the women that responded could remember any discussion about that. So in other words, three quarters of them didn't realise that menopause was something that had any bearing on their story. And I kind of get that because as a you know member of the public, if you're faced with a diagnosis of cancer, it doesn't really matter what type of cancer, mm. your prime thing at the time is, oh my gosh, will I survive? What treatment am I going to have? How's that going to affect my immediate health? However, the menopause is very often induced, worsened, brought on by treatments for breast cancer. And therefore, it should be factored in to longer term planning. And that might be something that you have a discussion about at the time of diagnosis. It might be something that you need to come back to later on, either by discussion or having some written material or just something that will remind the woman that in six months or six years or 16 years, if she's struggling, that she's got some information and somewhere to know where to go for help. And that really is where the system in the current NHS for many people, unfortunately, seems to fall down. And so carrying on with this survey, I asked them about, for example, what types of treatment they'd had. And half of our respondents had had chemotherapy. And we know that chemotherapy is very toxic to the ovaries. And so it can make you menopausal for either a couple of years and then sometimes your ovaries recover or that may be it. It may sort of finish your ovaries off. And so many women assume that all of the symptoms they possibly get, like brain fog, joint pains, mood changes, hot sweats, flushes, they put it all down to the chemotherapy or the stress of having a cancer diagnosis and don't necessarily realise that this is actually the menopause and may or may not be a permanent feature. And so only, uh, well, less than half of those that had chemotherapy had been told that menopause may feature. Quite bizarrely, 14 of our respondents had had their ovaries removed as part of their treatment, but nine of them weren't told that that would also induce menopause. Now, maybe to you and I, that's completely obvious. If you remove the ovaries, you're going to be menopausal, but it's not actually obvious to most of the public. And it's a huge thing to have your ovaries removed. They might be tiny little grape-sized features but they do an enormous amount for how we feel now and for our future health and so how you could not have a conversation about that is is worrying and then the most common treatment after breast cancer surgery is often the drugs that are used to block estrogen and they can induce all sorts of symptoms and problems and again you know it has its role in helping slightly to reduce risk of recurrence but that can often be a very slight improvement. But actually the symptoms that it brings about and the complications are very rarely spoken about. So most of the women remember being told how beneficial these drugs would be for their future risks from their breast cancer. But 
Not many of them remember being told that there were any risks or possible side effects, and very few of them recall any mention that menopause would also be impacted by blocking oestrogen. And so again, I think by this we're not in any way trying to criticise breast cancer surgeons or oncologists, not at all. We're just saying there's something drastic is missing here Mm. because in order to treat the condition of breast cancer, you actually have a knock-on effect on the rest of somebody's health. And those things are important. And you can't adequately counsel a patient about cancer treatment if you don't tell them about all the possible short and long-term conditions. So the survey shows that that is a problem. It is a real problem. I think what's very interesting is that for lots of people, menopause just means stop of periods or Mm. loss of fertility. So when you're faced with a diagnosis or a woman's faced with a diagnosis of breast cancer and hearing words such as chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery... Well, menopause is just, oh, goodness me, that's nothing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And in even, you know, some of the oncologists don't have training in the menopause, so they think it was a few hot flushes. It's not really, they trivialize it. And for some women, it might not cause many symptoms, but as we know, those hormone reductions can lead to health risks as well. Mm-hmm. But actually, for those women who think, well, they're brain fog and their bone pain is a chemo brain or the bone pain might be a bone metastasis and they really worry about that and a lot of women I see in my clinic and you might be the same have seen it an oncologist before but they know that they're really busy so they've often seen other people maybe a junior doctor or a nurse and the focus has been all about their breast cancer you know have you noticed a lump how have you been you know and that's all they want they're having and which is don't get me wrong I'm not undermining it and I know you're not either but you know they've had their mammogram they've had the check and that's good their breast cancer has not recurred tick that box and a lot of women don't even have time to vocalize their symptoms or they often don't realize their symptoms might be related to the menopause and that's something that you were finding as well isn't it yeah I mean, for example, with like aromatase inhibitors, we know that joint pain is a really common and can be a very severe effect of aromatase inhibitors. And yet most people, the public and healthcare professionals alike, probably wouldn't put the two together. So if you're an oncologist and you're, you know, you've got a busy clinic and a woman a few years post her breast cancer has come in and she's saying, oh, my joints are aching, they probably aren't likely to have the maybe the knowledge or the time to you know process that information and to sort of direct her somewhere helpful and often unfortunately what ends up happening is women in secondary care or anyone in secondary care where it doesn't seem to come under the exact remit of why they're there are then sent back to the GP and the GP quite understandably is likely to be nervous of any cancer related possible effects or treatments or you know HRT because of everything that we've maybe been mis you know mislearned about menopause and HRT and so these people a common theme from a lot of these ladies in this survey was saying well the oncologist did their job and the surgeon did their job and now you know no one seems to now want to help me but I'm actually feel worse than I did Mm. when I was having my breast cancer treatment and so we can't expect GPs to be able to manage that complexity and we do need a team approach Mm. so in my ideal world 
you would have in every breast cancer clinic, you would have a breast surgeon, an oncologist, probably a breast cancer specialist nurse and a menopause specialist. Mm. Because actually, if all those were talking to each other and crucially to the patient, then you're going to have a much more cohesive plan going forward. But at the moment, that's all bitty and messy in most cases. It is. And we do see, don't we, a lot of women, as I said before, have been told you can never have HRT from Mm. their oncologist. And then maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, these women are really struggling and say, I can't keep living with these symptoms of the menopause. And it's not really appropriate always to refer them back because we know that the clinics are really busy and everything else. And quite often I've spoken to oncologists and when you talk through then actually they're very understanding and say oh gosh I might have said that 20 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever one of my colleagues might have said something but obviously things change with time and you know we're doing a lot of work as many of you know sort of looking at the evidence which is very limited but then Mm. we need to look at the evidence of benefits of HRT including benefits to quality of life as well as future health and certainly a lot of women I see are more worried about osteoporosis than they are about recurrence of their breast cancer yeah and then I think as a clinician it's very hard to go against what a patient wants isn't it when they're fully consenting adults yeah it's you know we've got to start listening to patients and seeing them as not just a breast cancer survivor that they have usually these days a very good prognosis And they're likely actually to end up dying of something else one day. And that we can't just completely ignore all their other parts of us, which make us a healthy individual. So, yeah, we've got to start listening. We've got to start involving women in the uncertainty and the decisions and not being, you know, paternalistic medicine is a thing of the past now. Mm, Absolutely. We often don't have the infrastructure to provide proper shared decision making. Yeah, and I was looking at Macmillan, which I'm sure you've all heard of, and one of their sort of mission statements is to live life as well as possible, you know, beyond cancer. And it's absolutely really important, isn't it? And a lot of women want to live rather than exist. And Mm. actually, a lot of women I talk to, almost, they don't want to forget they've had breast cancer, but they don't want to be defined as a woman who's had breast cancer. They want to be defined as a woman who's a managing director of a company or a woman who's got three children or a woman who's a wife or a partner to somebody or whatever. But it's something that's happened to them. And I don't know whether it's breast cancer more than any other cancers, but it does seem more than any other condition. You know, if I'd had a heart attack 20 years ago, people wouldn't worry about what I did really because it's very likely that my heart's quite strong to keep me living 20 years. But with breast cancer, it, it is quite emotional. And I think some of the work that we're doing in this space we get attacked a lot and actually what we're Mm. doing is we're not there saying I want to increase your risk of recurrence we're not doing that we're saying I want to improve the quality of your life and actually maybe the duration of your life as well because we know that most women who've had breast cancer die from heart disease taking HRT can reduce that but we're not even saying every woman who's had breast cancer should take HRT We're saying these women, and we don't know the numbers, it might be a very, very small percentage, are really struggling with their menopause after breast cancer. Mm. And those women deserve to have the same level of care and attention as any other woman who's struggling with their symptoms, don't they? Yeah, there's, you know, there are alternatives 
to HRT and for some people they're very effective and some patients that find their way to our clinic have tried some of them but actually some of them haven't even had any information about those so you know if people think that you know we work in a clinic where we just talk about HRT and nothing else they're very wrong because actually having time to listen to these patients and talk about their lifestyle and things that they might just be able to do on a day-to-day basis with exercise or diet may be absolutely crucial. Or there might be other therapies, complementary therapies or non-hormonal containing therapies that might yeah. be useful. For example, in this survey, 86% of the patients had genitourinary syndrome of menopause, but actually less than 30% of them had been offered vaginal lubricants or moisturisers. Now, they don't contain any hormones at all, but if that hasn't even been mentioned then there clearly is a a big need, isn't there? One positive I think we should take out of the survey is that about between 30 and 40% of those women had been offered some vaginal oestrogen. Now, that's still, you know, inadequate number in my mind. However, it's a lot better than two years ago when we did the survey when it was about 10%. So I am trying to take the positive out of that, that somewhere in the last two years, maybe the message has got out there that vaginal oestrogen is an appropriate choice for women with breast cancer because it's very safe and effective and can be life-changing for these women. Yes, and that is really important. And I think, Mm. you know, there are alternatives, as in prescribed alternatives, that can be useful for some women, but they often limited by side effects and they'll often only really work for some symptoms like the vasomotor symptoms, the flushes and sweat. So they won't help strengthen bones or whatever. But one of the drugs that's been used, and I just recently found out that 2.1 million pounds of government money is being spent on a study looking at giving either venlafaxine, which is an antidepressant, as many of you know, Mm. or oxybutynin, which is a drug that I used to prescribe quite a lot, actually, in the 90s and early 2000s for women who have urinary symptoms because it helps sometimes with urinary symptoms but it's really limited by its side effects because it works on something called the muscularinic receptors and if you have these side effects it can cause dry mouth dry eyes dry vagina of course because Mm. it affects those membranes but also there's an increased risk of dementia in women and men actually who use oxybutynin it can affect memory so I have a real issue actually that 2.1 million pounds is being spent on giving women these drugs that might not actually make a big difference and I've heard that there's a bit of recruitment problem with this study and I'm not surprised because women Mm. don't want them and my daughter recently some of you might know has my oldest daughter has horrendous migraines but she's also has asthma and she was given an inhaler recently and it contained something that was an anti-muscularinic and she kept phoning me for six weeks and saying I feel bad my migraines have worsened but I feel very low in my mood I feel terrible I can't remember things my skin's really dry I can't focus on my phone or my computer I can't read music and she's a trombonist and I was hearing all these symptoms just on their own and I kept thinking oh maybe she's a bit stressed or maybe it's related to her migraine because migraine can cause systemic effects and then I feel really embarrassed I sat down with Rebecca Lewis as you know who's a clinical director with me saying Rebecca I'm a bit worried about Jessica and she said what inhaler is she on and I told her the name and we both looked at each other and went that's an anti-muscularinic no wonder so I told Jessica to stop and it took about two weeks for her memory to come back 
And last weekend, I was telling her about this study I'd found giving this drug. I said, it's very similar to your inhaler, but it's a tablet form to women who've had breast cancer. And do you know what she did? She burst into tears and said, Mummy, you can't give that drug to people. I cannot tell you how horrendous it's been. And I'm not saying everyone has those side effects, but they are yeah. quite common side effects, aren't they? And oxybutynin, we don't use so much for urinary symptoms because there's more refined drugs now, aren't there, that yeah. are don't yeah. have such side effects. So I feel like we're going back in time a bit for women who've had breast cancer, which isn't really pushing the needle forwards. And I've spoken to a lot of oncologists to say, can we not do a proper study with HRT? And then yeah. they've said, well, there's no funding because HRT is cheap and you know all the cancer drugs are expensive. So we're doing more cancer drug studies. And it's But if you're looking at population improvement, isn't it better to give something that's cheap that we know is safe and they said well recruitment would be a problem women are scared of hormones I said I don't think there would be a recruitment problem actually but it seems I mean I know you're frustrated as well aren't you it's it's very Mm. frustrating that we can't move science further in this area yeah we need more trials looking at actually what happens if you replace the hormones but it's so difficult to do studies like that these days And in fact, I think it's pretty difficult to do any sorts of studies in this day and age with a population who are generally more empowered and generally have a good idea of what they want because women, well, anybody can access quite a lot of information now on the internet and already has quite a good idea of what would suit their needs. And so they don't usually want to be randomised into a trial where they don't know whether they're going to get the drug or the placebo option. So we talk all the time, don't we, about evidence-based medicine and, Mm. well, is there a trial that proves that? And actually, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But actually, the other two crucial parts of evidence-based medicine are what are actually the views and preferences of the patient. And that's, you know, what we would always advocate spending time with. And thirdly, is the clinical expertise. And I couldn't sleep at night if I saw patients with a history of breast cancer and didn't talk to them about all the options, which includes HRT, because by my experience over the years, I have seen hundreds of women have their life transformed and thank me and be forever grateful that they can. I had a lady the other day who said, oh, my God, I've just been on the underground. I haven't been confident enough to do that for years. I was able to drive abroad. You know, little things like that might sound like nothing to somebody else, but actually that can you know, enhance their life no end. And actually, if it keeps them alive, which, you know, sadly, we have patients that filled in the survey who have talked quite openly about their plans for what they would do if they hadn't had an appointment with us in terms of feeling like they couldn't go on. So I will offer HRT on an individual basis because of my clinical experience to date. And I don't care if there isn't a study that Mm. proves beyond all doubt that that's fine because my training as a doctor enables me to do that and I will defend myself mercilessly if I had to. And I think that's really important. I mean, just for those listening... Just for reassurance, really, we collect the data from every single person who's had breast cancer. And Dan Rees, our clinical research lead, 
is looking at everything and every year we're following people up and I'm hoping with time actually we'll show that these women do have good outcomes and I'm sure we do and it's very important you know we do a lot of training and education and we spent a few hours recently at an education event just for our healthcare practitioners and it was actually really well received wasn't it Sarah you were presenting and we had others we had an oncologist there and another specialist and it's really useful for anything in medicine that we can do discuss uncertainty and I think when you're young you expect doctors to know everything and I think it takes a lot of clinical experience like you say to be able to share uncertainty with patients and to say look I don't know whether this is harmful or good I know on balance these are the benefits these are the potential risks and you know what do you think and also that you can change your mind at any time as well you know every woman that you've seen you've started on HRT you haven't made them sign their life that they're going to take it forever they just often try and we review and they it's jointly done together so I think it's really important that nothing is a flippant decision it's done with a lot of consideration and support actually we give a lot of support to our clinicians but also women have a lot of support often they will go and talk to their family or their close friends before making a decision as well and that's really important isn't it yeah it's you know I could see three people in a day and they might all have had the same type of breast cancer at the same stage with the same pathology results and I might go through the options with them and we may have three entirely different outcomes. Mm. One may choose to use HRT, one might not, one might choose to do something else, one might want to change other medication, you know, and that's that's fine. I've done my job if all the outcomes are different. Yes. Absolutely. It's so important. And, you know, this conversation is really just beginning. We've got a lot more that we're doing. And Sarah's on this clinical steering group that we've got together doing this Delphi process. And it's exciting because I think it's trying to show that we're not neglecting women because we don't want to neglect anyone. And so I'm really grateful for your time doing the survey and being involved with all this, Sarah, and involved in so much of the education work that you do. And there's just so much. I know many a time, many an evening, we both feel completely overwhelmed. (laughs) But also I feel like, you know, working together, working with others, we're making a difference. And that's really important. So before we finish, I know you'll probably done your homework because you're so... (laughs) so diligent but three take-home tips I'm going to ask you to choose what the take-home tips are because you've probably written them so you say what your three (laughs) take-home tips are you know me so well I thought what I'd do seeing as it's the fifth time is I would give you three quotes from the survey is that okay yeah that's perfect thank you so the first one I'll start with the most difficult one I suppose so one lady said at the point of making the appointment with yourselves I was working on an end-of-life plan, including what I would need to do before the end of my life and where I would end it and who would have to find me. So that's obviously an illustration of the low points which some women, not all, I'm not saying all, but some women get to and why we need to deal with this group of women better. Secondly, I want to be treated as an intelligent, informed woman and not to be lectured I understand that no choice is without risk, but there should still be choice. I was very grateful to the NHS for my breast cancer treatment, but my choices were then limited to the preferences of my care team with limited opportunity for discussion. And that's where the whole thing about shared decision making and respecting our patients' choices and listening and helping them make decisions is is crucial. And thirdly, and I guess it was the summary of my 
survey really was there is a missing link in the NHS between finishing breast cancer treatment and starting to get your life back. And that's, I think, where we really want to try and plug a big gap with more of the work that the Newton Health Menopause Society Breast Cancer Group is doing. Absolutely. Thank you ever so much yet again. And we'll put some resources in the podcast notes and on the Balance website. We've got a booklet that we've all written together for women who've had breast cancer. So I'm very grateful again for your work and your time for the podcast. And I wonder how long it will be till you come back for number six. So thanks very much, Sarah. Thank you, Louise. For more information about the perimenopause and menopause, please visit my website, balance-menopause.com, or you can download the free Balance app, which is available to download from the App Store or from Google Play. Music